John chapter 2. Uh, would somebody read verses 1 to 11? Somebody was observant. We've already read about, uh, we will read about Cana, not would have. Uh, that's where Nathaniel was from. Uh, that's 21 2. So uh, he's in Nathaniel's hometown and uh, he's at a wedding feast there with his disciples. And what tragedy occurs? They run out of wine. And Jesus' mother is there and she says to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, there's some things about this story that are probably subject to interpretation, but it looks like she's giving a little motherly advice to Jesus. Maybe giving him a suggestion that he needs to do something about this. Maybe even a suggestion that he used this as an opportunity to announce himself to the world. Mary obviously knows some things about Jesus and his identity. And it would have seemed like an appropriate time to maybe uh, use as a platform to uh, promote his true identity or something of that nature. Um, at least that, that seems to be the way Jesus took what she was saying. Um, we'll come back to that statement, they have no wine in a minute. But what's Jesus' answer to her? <clears throat> yes, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, when he calls her a woman, that's not like it sounds to us. If you say, woman, you know, it's more like, it's more like uh, ma'am or miss or lady. It wasn't like a derogatory term, but it wasn't what you said to your mother. You know, you don't call your mother miss or ma'am. Well, maybe you say, yes, ma'am, but, but you, you call her mother. And Jesus wasn't. He wasn't recognizing her in the role of a mother to him and while he was here on the earth. Um, he, he's putting himself beyond the natural family relationship. And he says, what does this have to do with us? Kind of like, you know, why are you telling me this? I'm not under your authority anymore. I don't answer to your wishes. 
For he says, my hour has not yet come. Who determines when Jesus' hour would come? He's on God's timetable. Everything, even family ties, have to be subordinated to the mission God gave Jesus in the hour that he gave him. Jesus is heavenly father, not his earthly mother, is in charge. And uh, so he makes that pretty clear. And then she says something that I think indicates that she still believed he would do something about this, even though he's not necessarily going to do what she thought he should do with this. She says, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, you can just use that. That's exactly right. Whatever he says to you, do it. But she means in this context. And so what does Jesus say for them to do? Yeah, you have these uh, big, large, 20 to 30 gallon a piece water pots, six of them there. They were used for Jewish purification. And Jesus says, you fill these up to the brim with water. And that, that Jesus changes that water to wine, he has them draw some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. And of course, what does he think? Yeah, wow! I mean, normally, you say you serve the best first. You know, after people drunk a lot, maybe they wouldn't be as, you know, sensitive about the taste of that or whatever. And he says, you've saved the best to last. Josh? Okay, you can talk. Go ahead. Well, address that question. We need to sometime anyway. Was this alcoholic wine? And perhaps was the good wine, you know, alcoholic or non alcoholic? You can get quite a debate about that. I'll tell you what I believe, and I'll tell you why, and you can do with this what you want to. I don't think that Jesus made intoxicating wine. I'll tell you some reasons why I don't believe it, and you can evaluate the strength of those. The word wine itself is an ambiguous word in the original. It meant the, the liquid coming from the grape. And you would use that word wine for grape juice, and you would use it for alcoholic wine. You remember, for example, that Jesus speaks of putting new wine into old wineskins. Well, new wine was fresh grape juice, but wine also was the term used for alcoholic wine. It's kind of like our word drink. If I say I want a drink, what does that mean? Well, it depends on the context. If you're in some place and you say I want a drink, they assume that means alcoholic. I hope you'd think if I said that, it would mean water. <laughs> so it does depend on the context. Um, 
So, so that's one point. I assume the master of ceremonies here was not drunk. If he was drunk, how would he know his better wine? Um, it looks to me like that the most likely assumption we would make to begin with would be that this is grape juice. Because it's just made. If you just squeeze the grapes, it's going to be new wine. I don't think we'd have to make it that much. Jesus is going to accelerate the fermentation process if he wants to. So he could have made fermented wine, but I think you'd assume to begin with, well, it'd be new wine. It was new. Um, but, but most importantly to me, whatever you want to say about the pros and cons of, you know, a small amount of alcoholic content and beverages in the first century and so forth, Jesus made six 20 to 30 gallon pots of this stuff. I mean, everybody understands getting intoxicated is wrong. Well, if this is intoxicating wine, Jesus made enough to get a whole bunch of folks really drunk. <laughs> I don't think Jesus would contribute to somebody's drunkenness. So my conviction is this is non-alcoholic wine. This is grape juice. Now, there's some very good Bible students that are on the other side of that question. I, I would not, you know, think somebody was a heretic who, who took the other view. But that's my view, and that's why I hold that view. Anybody dying to say something about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, now, look at several points about this. There's just a lot in this that's valuable to us. Um, well, do you see the point of this? I mean, yes, this is an amazing miracle. Maybe we ought to start there. This was an amazing miracle, wasn't it? I mean, wow! This water, she doesn't even touch it. And it becomes wine. I mean, how could you do that? I mean, you know, magicians do some things. But you just can't do this. And you see some things that sort of confirm this as being an authentic miracle. What are some things that are especially impressive about this miracle? Outside the Roman basement. Okay, yes it is. What are some details that are impressive, right? The jars are all the way full, so they couldn't have like, added anything. Yes! I mean, you know, if you had concentrated, you know, wine, you know, essence or something that you could have added to it and stirred it up, you know, but, but they're filled with rim. So you couldn't do that. Instantaneous. For a huge amount. Instantaneous for a huge amount. Yeah, like there's so much of it. This enormous quantity. It's not like, you know, you managed to uh, make a little wine in a cup. This is like 150 gallons of this stuff. It's amazing, Tip. He has all the servants do it, and they don't know what's happening. He, you know, he just tells them to do it. Yeah, this is a, like a blind test. You know, it's, it's, they don't know. He doesn't touch it. The MC doesn't even realize it's different wine until he drinks it. I mean, others are doing everything. Yes? Yes. So others are certifying the genuineness of this. Uh, the judgment that it's better wine is objective. Exactly. So, so really, all of that goes together. 
to say this is quite a miracle. Really, almost all the miracles in John are like this. I mean, when Jesus heals the official son, he does it a long distance. When he heals a man paralyzed, the guy had been paralyzed 38 years. When he feeds the multitude, he starts with practically nothing and feeds 5,000 men. When he gives sight to a man who's blind, he was born blind. When he raised a man who was dead, he'd been dead four days, and so forth. The, the signs in John, the descriptions, really make you see how incredibly impressive those signs were. But what's the point of this miracle? Is it just that Jesus could do some impressive tricks? What do you think the lesson primarily is? It says in verse 11, it manifested his glory. Yes. So it shows his glory in what way? How does this show his glory? His glory of what? What does this show you about Jesus? He's divine. Yes. Ben? I guess you're talking about how you talk about Peter and how Peter was changing. Jesus can change people. I think so. I think it shows Jesus' transforming power. <coughs> we serve a Jesus who can make wine out of water. We serve a Jesus who can make a saint out of a sinner, who can make a Cephas out of a son. I think it really, this shows you deeper things about Jesus. It's cool that he can take water and make it wine, but that's just a sign. That's just a, a, a physical thing to show a deeper thing about who Jesus is and what he can really do. And when Jesus does it, it's always top, top rate. You know, it's always the best. You know, Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that poorly. He does it wonderfully. First rate. Here's another thing. And you don't have to follow me on this, but I wonder if this is not a part of this. These water what were they being used for? Jewish purification. Now, Jesus can take the water of Jewish purification and make it into the wine of the Messianic era. And I gather that the jars of Jewish purification must have been empty. They're filled now by Jesus through his orders. And how many of them were there? Could that be significant? There were not seven, only six. And it, it even makes me wonder when, when Jesus' mother said they have no wine. If we're meant to think about that a little more deeply, <laughs> they have no wine. <laughs> Emphasizing the barrenness of what they had, particularly when you think about passages like Amos 9, verses 13 and 14, and Isaiah 25, 6, that identify the Messianic era as the time of abundant wine. Not literally, of course, but as a symbol. So when you look at all of that, I wonder if there's a, a, a secondary point being made about what this really means. That, that Jesus provides the wine 
to replace the, the water or not of, of Judaism. At any event, look at the difference between the servants' roles and Jesus' role. What did the servants do? Which was? Fill the water jars. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He made it wine. What do we do? We fill the water pots. What does Jesus do? He, he changes it. We do our part. We do what we can, which is limited. But Jesus can take that and make something out of it. Yes? Good point. I agree. Uh, what? Uh, how, how many signs had Jesus done before this? This was the beginning. This was the first one, meaning his uh, childhood miracles and the apocryphal gospels didn't really happen. We probably didn't think so anyway, some of the things that they tell about. And think about this. What was Moses' first plague? Water to blood. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus turns the water to wine. Okay, Wendell? I think, uh, I think we compare this to the water as being us and God changing us. So we can be like, something better. And the person that, was, that had the wine said it was good wine, it was better than the, than the one that they, they before, before they drank. So I think that we can compare ourselves to the water and God changes us to wine so we can be better. Good point. Yes. Amen. Roger. Um, you make that point about um, how Jesus changes the Jewish thing into Jesus. You know, you know, the new Messianic age, you tie that in with also chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 3, and Jesus' power to transform, you connect that with 3, and even the next story about the temple, do you, do you see some connection in that? Or, I don't know. Maybe I haven't thought about it. Um, Probably is. There usually is. <laughs> yes? Um, I read in a commentary uh, as I was studying John before this, and I heard that, uh, or I read that running out of wine at a wedding was like deeply humiliating, which might have been why Mary might have brought it up. Good point. I've read that too. Great. Um, in verse 1, when he says on the third day, is that just the third day of the week? Or I think the third day in this sequence. You have the day of 19 to 28, chapter 1, then 29 the next day, then 35 the next day, then 43 the next day, and then on the third day after that. So I think we're getting out of a sequence. Isn't that four? Third day. Well, adding the third day after the one in 43. Okay. So we're getting practically a weekend. Beth. Do you see any parallels between this occasion of Mark 7 where the Syrophoenician woman comes to him and she wants him to heal his daughter or her daughter and he initially rejects her and then she kind of persists and he doesn't. Maybe. I hadn't thought about that but maybe. I mean it's kind of awkward here that he does it when it seems like he wouldn't. 
You know, I'm taking that more as he's not doing it like she had in mind as displaying who he really was. But maybe her persistence has a part of that. John 7 records something similar where the brothers, brothers want him to go up to the Feast of the Tabernacle and he doesn't, and then he does. But he doesn't do it the way they wanted him to as a display. Yes? What's the point of doing it if it isn't a display? It's a sign. It shows something about him to his disciples, if nothing else. But it's not designed to make him the center of attention there. Yes? Is Jesus arguing with his mom? Then? <laughs> I think he's not doing what she wanted him to do the way she wanted him to do it. Yeah. I think he's not, he's not governed by his mom. He's governed by his father. He's, he's saying that you're not the one I respond to as a mother. I follow my heavenly father. Matt. Uh, and John, whenever he talks about his hour coming, you know, it usually kind of means in a sense of like him coming into his kingdom and being glorified on the cross. Is that what he's talking about? Like, I think so. I'm not going to start coming into my kingdom, but I will show my power and kind of who I am. Yeah, or I will do this as a sign, but I'm not going to display myself in a way that would, you know, exalt me or lead to the crucifixion immediately or whatever. Seth? Jesus' exaltation has never been that of a great sign. You think of his triumphant entry. He came in on a donkey. Yeah, I mean, his, his biggest moment when he was glorified was when he was hanging on the cross. He was never one to say, here, look at me, look at me, look at me. He, let, he was letting his father, he was showing the father through him. So, I mean, <coughs> when his mother's like, this is your chance to announce yourself. Where says, I don't want to announce myself. Yeah, good point. In the way that you think. Good point. Anything else? Jenny. I would have this kind of thing with the water versus spirit in chapter one. And Jesus will make it kind of regular water and like living water uh, later. And you know, water just looks clear. I'm not sure how you would make it look like living water. You know what I mean? Like the water would be visibly different. But to turn from water to wine is, is a visible change. And so we have regular water, but no, I bet that's regular water, he's baptism of the spirit. You get thirsty with regular water, I'll bring living water. This is like a similar transformation like those two. Okay, good point. JP. I like the idea that this head waiter, um, I guess, is supervising all these people. He's supervising um, this whole pouring of wine and the wedding. And that's his role. You know, his role is to, I guess, serve this, to pass this out. And yet, he can't do his work without Jesus. He needs Jesus to be able to continue to do his work. Um, now, the marginal note in my Bible also has steward in place of head waiter, or that um, you can use that word. And I guess what I'm gaining from this, what I gain from this is that us being stewards of God's grace, us having that, we are to, you know, we are called to pass it out. We're supposed to, you know, scatter the seed. We're trying to work, but we can't work without first coming to Jesus and having Him help us. And 
don't know, it's just a continuing reminder to me that we need him to work. Certainly those are true points, maybe going beyond what he intended here. It's hard to know how far to press details in something like this, but those are true points. Roger. Um, how much do you see in the book of John, this idea of Jesus being greater than Moses, <coughs> being greater, kind of like, I don't know, there's a lot of similarities between what Jesus does and what Moses do. There are several. And whether that is a theme that he's trying to press, and, and if he is, then why would he be doing it? I don't know. Well, go back to 117. Maybe there is some contrast between Moses bringing the law and him bringing the grace and the truth to show that what Jesus has done is greater than Judaism. Yeah, I think you, you do have several points like that. And, you know, in this gospel, he's trying to help them to see that Moses really pointed to him. They were still tied into what they thought Moses was saying. So there's probably something to all of that. Yes. Another thing is that he wasn't doing the center attention. All these miracles he had done, he was not doing the center attention because he loaded himself like in chapter 13. Chapter 13, he let the disciples wash his feet. Mm -hmm. He loaded himself. So he's doing this for the of God. He's not doing this for the and talking about kind of the point of the purpose of the miracle you're talking about, um, showing Jesus transforming power. You said the purpose for us, for, the reason it's recorded for us today. And, and I, I may make any sense. Here's what I'm asking is, at the end he says, um, and his disciples believe in him. You know, when we read John 20, 31, these are written you may believe. Is, is the purpose of the miracle not partially so that disciples would believe and so we would believe? Yes. <coughs> <laughs> I think so, if I understand. Yes, John. Uh, John uses the word signs a lot. Uh, would you feel comfortable like defining signs compared to miracles and wonders? Sure. Uh, signs, wonders, and miracles refer to the same event from a different aspect. Miracle refers to the power that God uses in doing it. Wonder refers to the amazing effect on people. And a sign gives you the idea that it points to something else, points to something deeper. And so the sign means that the point wasn't the miracle itself, but was the lesson or the teaching or the deeper meaning that was behind it. Yes? Uh, well, water reading this, it just came to me when uh, they felt when they had a water, which was a Jewish custom for purification, that was turned into wine. With, one of the purification means clean. And the wine in Father on represents the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's kind of a, you know, washing away our sins, kind of. Not, as, as I was reading, that's why I kind of, you know, came to my mind. It probably doesn't mean anything, but I don't know that. David? Uh, how would you find uh, Christ's hour then, more specifically? I think the time when he was going to be exalted on the cross. Because <laughs> you know, I was kind of very different, like, Kind of all of that <coughs> kind of tied together. All right, good, good questions. Um, would somebody read 12 to 22? After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for three days. 
Passover the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple we found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting uh, sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and poured out the coins of the money changers, and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house, uh, my father's house a house of trade. The disciples remember what was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, this, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and he will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking, speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore um, he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had uh, he had said this and believed the scripture and that and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay. In verse 12, he goes down to Capernaum. In verse 13, he goes up to Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. And wow, what's happening in the temple? Yeah, lots of stuff going on that you wouldn't think would be going on in the temple, like selling the ox and the sheep, taking the money. You've sort of got uh, the opportunity to buy the animals on site for sacrifice, to change the money, to pay for the temple tax. And they're doing this probably in the court of the Gentiles, uh, which is where the Gentiles could come and worship God. And Jesus is very outraged by this. What does he do? What does he do? Yeah, he throws things. Like he overturns the tables and money changes, the coins go spilling out. What else does he do? Yeah, he makes a whip and he drives those animals out. He drives everybody out. He's he's like a madman. He's in a frenzy. Get out of here. Why is he so upset? Not only are they misusing what God has given them, but what are they misusing? His father's house. Think about that. You know, what would you think if, you know, you, your parents were maybe gone and some people just invaded their house and turned it into a bar or a carnival or whatever? It's like, wait a minute, you can't be here. You have no business being in my father's house. This, is my, this belongs to my parents. You don't do that in here. That, that's the outrage Jesus felt. He resented them degrading God's house to a mark in the stockyard. We have a hard time with outrage and indignation. You know, we get so complacent. We don't really care about our heavenly father's house. Jesus acts decisively. You know, we, this is not exactly Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus on rampage. You know, look at what they're doing. And he, he can't stand it. And he drives them out. And what you see is, Jesus loved his father enough to care. He loved his father enough to do something. Now, What's the, what's the application for us? To have a burning zeal for God. Wes? 
need to care about the temple of our body that we have for God and what we put into it and what goes on within. Absolutely. Because where does God dwell now? In us. Would he come, would Jesus come and cleanse our lives? Because he'd be outraged that we put so much garbage in his father's dwelling place, his father's house. Things that clutter it up with, with things that don't matter. Or, or perhaps things that that are totally an abomination to him. What would he what would he make us a whip and drive out of our lives? That, I think that's the kind of application that would be most appropriate to this. Now, I want to say a couple more things about this. Um, this is not the only time you read about Jesus cleansing the temple in the Gospels. It's the only time you read about it in John. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you read about it, except when is it then? The end of his life. Like the thing that precipitates the crucifixion in that last week of his life. But it appears here to be at the beginning of his ministry. So the question is, which Gospels were right? Did this happen at the beginning like John implies, or did it happen at the end of his life like the Synoptic Gospels? <laughs> Both. I think that's the, by far the best answer. While you might be able to argue that John's recording it early doesn't automatically mean it was early, I still think there's enough connections in the context that makes it difficult to think John is recording what happened in his final week of life. I use an illustration that's personal to me. Uh, when I lived in Brazil, we uh, lived in, near Sao Paulo, and we'd pass out flyers for correspondence courses and Bible studies on pedestrian streets in downtown Sao Paulo. It's a city of 20 million, so there's lots of pedestrians <coughs> on those pedestrian streets in downtown. But in many of those streets, camelos, which were basically black market vendors, would have like, oh, um, big tablecloths or, or sheets or whatever set up with bunches of stuff they were selling. You could get it cheap. They weren't paying taxes. You know, they were probably buying it from Paraguay. And uh, Brazilians always talk about stuff made in Paraguay, and it's the cheap stuff. But, uh, but so, and people buy from them. You know, just set up in the middle of this pedestrian street. But theoretically, they did not have city government authorization to be doing this. And from time to time, I'd be passing out flyers on one of these streets. And just like, I'd blink, and everybody was scattering. They were going into storefronts and wherever they were taking their stuff. Whoop! In just no time, it was cleared out. I'd look around behind me, and here comes the dump truck of the city government, slowly driving down the street. <laughs> they clear out. I remember one time, a boy didn't, he looked like a 12-year-old probably. He didn't get it out of there in time. And they grabbed his stuff. And man, he clung on to that. He was kicking and screaming and crying and shrieking, trying to get that back. I don't know what happened to the boy, but he lost that. But, but he hadn't gotten out of the way fast enough. But, but the thing that was funny is, you know, they'd clear out. Well, 45 minutes later, 
One vendor would come back and set up. And then, then pretty soon another one. And then another, two or three hours later, it'd be like nothing ever happened. They were all back cluttering the street just like they had been. Why wouldn't they be doing the same thing three, three years after Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning? Seems to me like there's nothing difficult to imagine that. And, you know, the Bible scholars just have a real tendency to want to downgrade the authenticity of the, of the Bible record. And so they always want to try to bring, you know, force contradictions and, and things like that. But I don't see any reason at all not to say there weren't two times that Jesus did the same thing. You know, why not? And, uh, you know, they, the, the, the skeptical scholars will say, well, well you know, you, this, this event went through a couple of different traditions. And some people told it this way, and some people told it that way. And it got to be, be associated with the beginning of his ministry, and got to be associated with the end of his ministry, and all that. That's just humanism. You know, if we believe that God inspired these men, then they knew what they were talking about. It doesn't depend on, you know, the vagaries of, of human tradition. So, comments and questions on those, uh, anything through verse 17. Logan. I've been thinking about the idea of Jesus cleansing the temple being related to our lives and making sure that uh, we don't let that fall into our lives. And having that zeal for God also causes us to have the zeal for helping our brethren. So when we see our brethren, those things being uh, that filth coming into their lives and probably there to believe that you will be going to get that out of their lives as well. Good point. Yes. I think when we were talking about how um, Jesus kind of gets angry here, and that's showing that he actually, you know, has feelings towards what he's doing. I think in today's world, we kind of misunderstand meekness and hum humility and uh, kind of get too shy and we're afraid to make ways. We're afraid to do anything and just kind of stand in the background. And I think this is a good example of where we can learn in today's world where it's not necessarily a bad thing to make a wave, to make somebody else a little bit mad because somebody's going to disagree with this. Good point. Excellent. Other comments? Ben? The disciples in verse 17 remember something that was written after they see what it's done. And you can, Jesus could be connecting so many different ways to the scriptures that they already have, but it takes a certain kind of mind to see this connection. And unfortunately, we all Great point. We ought to constantly be relating everything that happens to the Lord and what He said. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? Shake. Remember, you know, I read in verse, in verse 17 where we talk about disciples remembering the verse about Him being zealous, zealous for His house. It reminded me a lot of, of in Joel chapter 2, verse 18, after this great locust plague has come and wiped up the land, these people have repented in the beginning of chapter 2. So it says in chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The idea, of, just the idea of him being zealous for us. And just the idea of us being the temple of the Lord and how zealous he is for our life. And this God that we talk about in John chapter 1, that we are made in him, not only wants it to be his, it's not because we're his possession, because he loves us and desires us with a zeal that we'll never understand, for us to be his. It's truly an amazing thought. Amen. Yes, right. This is one of the few times that Jesus gets angry. 
He gets angry on behalf of his father, not himself. Good point, yes. Jesus' anger was not selfish. It was because of his father. So, Brigham. Did we finish discussing affections? How is what Jesus says in response to their question, what sign do you show? And he just says, Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm about to go there. I'm sorry. I, yeah. I didn't know. No if problem. Start reading yeah. So in 18, the Jews then asked, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? It's like they're demanding his credentials. Who gives you the right? to come into our temple and rearrange the furniture. You know, they would have thought of this as being an infringement on their temple. Well, Jesus answers by saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, that's kind of an interesting statement. For one thing, you know, they respond, well, it took us 46 years to build the thing. You're going to raise it back in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When Jesus said he raised it up in three days, he's not talking about the physical building because that wasn't where God was dwelling anymore. God was living in Jesus. You know, uh, that, was, that was God's holy temple. And in fact, their physical building was a hollow shell because God was leaving that and he dwelt in Jesus. So the real temple, the real house of God is Jesus, not this physical building in Jerusalem. Now when Jesus says, destroy this temple, he may almost be saying, go ahead and destroy it. And their actions did destroy it. But he raises it back up in the person of his body three days later. When they destroyed Jesus, they destroyed their own temple. You know, they, 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 that kind of laid the, the seeds for the destruction of the temple as God's judgment for destroying his true temple. And when he was raised from the dead, three days after he died, the disciples remembered this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. It's interesting. They put the scripture and Jesus' words on a parallel. They're the same thing. They remember both. All right, comments and questions. Now, Brick. So, so, no one really understands what you're talking about. Nobody. He makes a response that neither the Jews or the apostles are I think you're right. But Jesus did that a lot. Jesus would say a lot of things that people didn't understand right at first. I think wanting us to reflect and to puzzle over and to come to the truth. Tim. Which is, I think, appropriate because he didn't need any credentials. He didn't actually need to prove it because he had the right to do it because it was the right thing to do. Period. So why bother answering that? And just Good point. Yes, absolutely. Jesus had an inherent right to do what he did. He didn't have to answer them at all. When he does answer, it's not so clear what he's saying. It does take reflection to understand what that means. You know, don't ever think, you know, I hear people saying sometimes, this will give me a chance to get on a soapbox. I haven't, I haven't really preached yet, so. Uh, but you know, every once in a while I hear people saying, well, the Bible's just so simple that, you know, if you say anything that a third grader couldn't understand, you just made it too complicated. 
Because the Bible's written in such a simple way. We, I, I heard that, uh, you know, a million times, more or less, when I was growing up. Well, is it really true? I'm not saying that everything in the Bible is super complicated, and certainly there are people who, you know, try to complicate that which is simple. But there are many things in the Bible that are very deep and profound, and they're not always that simple. And when we only want to hear the simple things, we're sort of short-circuiting the diet. We need to get to where we can digest the meat and not just the milk. And so don't think when somebody preaches a sermon that's more difficult, well, it must just not be much, because he ought to be able to just, you know, everything ought to be simple. Not everything is simple. God didn't intend for it to be. He intended some things to really make us think and study and work on for a while. Yes. Paul wouldn't be upset with the Corinthians for still being on the, on the milk of the word if that was the case. Exactly. So. It shows Jesus' power. He, he's not trying to set up an earthly kingdom. In chapter 6, they try to force him to be a king and he runs away. This shows that the plan, what he did by dying on the cross and raising from the dead, was the plan all along. It wasn't something that was an afterthought just in case his first plans failed. Certainly. Definitely. Yeah. And yet, oftentimes the Bible is very simple and, and it's just it's hard to get. And the problem here is really not what he's saying. It's the people who are here. You know, and, and you know, it, it, there are deeper things where you can think of like the Corinthians and, and the, those uh, Hebrew letters written to you know, they're, they're told, no, you can't, you're not ready for this, but the problem really is that they're not ready for it, not that the message is, is that much of a problem. And here, you know, the, these men are defending something which they should have never been defending in the first place, and that's, I think, the harder problem. Well, yeah, certainly that's true. It's not a problem, though, when God does give meat that he expects us to have to work on. God does challenge us, even in our understanding, even with a good heart, not because that's a problem or he shouldn't, but because he intentionally wants to deepen us. And he intends for us to have to study and work to understand some things. We appreciate him a lot more that way. So, but yes, certainly their attitude keeps their mind from ever grasping these things because they, they don't love the truth, they don't love the Lord. And that's just another aspect we really need to take into account when something becomes hard and difficult for us. You know, maybe the problem is not that it's you know, just such a hard teaching. The problem is that we have a severe flaw in our problem. Amen. Chase? Kind of a random and never thought about before question. Why three days? Why raise three days? Any, anything on that note? Any enlightenment? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's amazing that you know, Jesus is willing to say this, for saying this, even though he knows that later these words are going to be too busy, you know? Absolutely. Jesus said this even though he knew that he would use these, twist these words against him. Good point. All right. Jamie. This may be a touch on writing, but I mean, in verse 18, they don't say, oh, what authority do you do these things? They say, what, uh, what sign do you show us for these things? They're already established that connection between if you can demonstrate a sign that shows your authority, that shows you from God, and, I mean, Jesus used that exact same logic. If I can show you a sign that shows me from God, therefore, you can listen to me. Uh, and they're, they're the ones who see that connection as well, though they're not willing to uh, allow that to then listen to Jesus. Good point. Yeah. 
Okay, 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So, he's there at Jerusalem during the Passover, working signs, many believed, but how did Jesus deal with their, their belief? They didn't trust him. They didn't trust him. Did, he did not trust him. Yeah. Why not? He knew they weren't for real. Yes. Jesus has penetrating insight, and he knew that this faith was not really deep. You know, Jesus was looking for genuine conversion, not just an enthusiasm for spectacular stunts. You know, they were all impressed. Ah, look at these signs. Faith that's only based on signs in John is a very shallow faith. And we'll see that over and over again. You know, and the faith based on signs often doesn't even see the sign for a sign. It just sees the, sees the marvel as a marvel. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And so he has no faith in their faith. And uh, he knows what's in man which leads us right into the next chapter. Comments and questions, Roger. What does it mean that he didn't trust them? Uh, he did not entrust himself to them. He did not, uh, he, he didn't really believe it was sincere and, and deep. You know, he wasn't good. So is, is that saying just in this instant, he knew their faith wasn't real, so he didn't trust them. That's saying kind of throughout his whole life, he never really, trusted anybody because for, I mean, because the trust was in God because the new men were No, I think some people, like Nathaniel, there is a true Israelite in which there's no deceit. Others, it's shallow. So he knows which are more dependable in their faith and which people's faith is really not amounting to much. Basically, he's not using the people in Jerusalem at this time as a constituency to build his candidacy for the Messiahship. Yes, yes. And he's not... He's not committing himself very much to them. You know, he's not going to invest much in them or depend much on them. Other thoughts? David. In other words, nobody had to tell him what men, what certain men were really like. He already knew. He had supernatural insight into their character and heart. Great. Um, this same type of phrase is in 1 Peter 2, 23. It says, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Do you think there's any, maybe a connection? I mean, certainly his ultimate trust is in God and not in man. Although I think in this sense, there were some people's faith he recognized as genuine and deep, but not these guys. Ben. These signs are powerful miracles, and they do create true faith in some people. But you know, I, Point about the excitement that's generated just by these miracles is we see, we're going to see that in chapter six. People get so excited about something, and we start thinking about excitement as the root of the problem, not just these people having bad faith and the fact they got swept away with excitement. Excitement is 